Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night. And under the tyranny of the schedule, uh, so um, just took a little bit of a look at Vayetzi, but to tell you the truth, the less I look at it, the better, because I'm unfortunately getting away um, of thinking. Today's podcast is being sponsored by David Feinkirch from uh, Winter Chats Brooklyn. It's the second time he sponsored. Attorney there, I want to thank him very much. Appreciate all the sponsors, obviously. And uh, it's nice to see the same person, you know, again, with much mazel. Uh, Vayese, of course, as we all know the story, has uh, two main parts. And I want to concentrate on the first and not the second. It was later in the week, maybe I will talk about the second. But the first part is, is the dream of Jacob. The second part is the adventures of Jacob and Lovin. Right? Yaakov runs around by Lovin. That's very important. There's a lot to talk about that. And the Lovin, as I think I've said in the past, represents a certain model of the Gullus, not identical with the model of Esau. Um, that's a lot of speculation right there. Uh, just consider, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you, you could have a good time hawking about, you know, the difference between um, the relationship between Yaakov and the brother and Yaakov and the uncle. Um, because, you know, Lovin tries to cheat him, Esau doesn't try to cheat him, he cheats Esau. But more importantly, um, by the time the story's over, as we all know, by the end, Yaakov emerges unscathed from Lovin. He came close, but Yaakov departs with all of his wives and children. Um, but when he battles the Sashal Esau, uh, the battle of Esau, he, he punches him in the lower part of his body. And that symbolizes a very famous teaching that... Uh, there will be a lot of people who convert to Christianity or whatever. In other words, it'll, a lot of carbonus by the progeny. That's the meaning of hitting him in the lower part of his body. And uh, so he emerges unscathed from Lovin, but he does not emerge unscathed from Aesop, which is just interesting. And uh, uh, Lovin has no grounds whatsoever to cry about what Jacob did to him, even though Lovin cries. That just means he's a bull artist. Uh, Esau has grounds to cry. And there's a famous medrash that says by Esau, so a cockadol or something like that. And, uh, you know, the medrash says that was Haman. When they issued the decree of Haman to kill all the Jews, he freaked everybody out, gave everybody a collective heart attack. So a cockadol you know, Shishana be wrong, all that. So, um, that means. That's a medish, chazal. That's a medish rabba. That means Esau had a taina. And that taina had to be dealt with or acknowledged or satisfied in some fashion. So it can't simply be, you know, Yaakov did 100% the right thing. Um, Yonas and Apes talked about this, but I don't want to get down into that. Instead, uh, my attention tonight, just thinking about it, is in the first part, which is the dream of Yaakov. Um, understand well, 
as far as I can tell, this is when Yaakov becomes a Novi. We always think, oh, the Abbas and the the Amos and the yeah, eventually. Doesn't mean you're born that way. Uh, as I tried to argue last time, when um, it says, Vayam Hashem Law, when, when the mother, Rivka, runs and says, what's going in my stomach? And she gets an answer. That's when she becomes a Novi. Right? Through the pain of that. Yaakov is also going through a great deal of pain and fear. There's a wonderful Barbanel who says that Yaakov is running away and he's scared. Right? Um, he's scared. He says, uh, let's put it this way. <laughs> he's running away. And of course, as we all know, immediately had to sleep and had the prophetic dream. The dream is assuring him of something. If it has to assure him of something, sounds like those that something was an issue. And the dream, of course, assures him, I'll take care of you. You know, in other words, you'll you'll be successful. Shmami know that he was afraid of not being successful because he'd done something crooked. That's not me, that's the Barbanel. That's a very thoughtful Barbanel. Um, Yaakov is worried and scared. And Adraba, that is the reason Hashem comes and says, your mother was right. Right? Your mother's right. I mean, look, whether or not, from a human perspective, you did the fair thing, the right thing, from a divine perspective, it it was supposed to be. That's what our Barbara reads. It's very interesting. And by the way, that's what we believe. We can have endless bull sessions about whether Yaakov did the right thing or not. Um, and to say, Anochi, Kama, Esau, Becharecha, it's kind of a Deichik, Bavart, you know. I wouldn't want to have to deal with a client like that. But, um, you know, as <laughs> like Bill Clinton. What does is mean? But in a divine sense, it's clear this is part of the Hashkacha. Why it should be that Hashem wanted Yaakov and Esau to do this way, whatever. But if God appears to him on the way, running away from Esau, that's the big point of the story. And he appears to him in the dream and says, I'll take care of you. Then Hashem is saying, you did the right thing. God doesn't say, wake up, young man, go back, confess to your brother, make it right. Which is what you think from a human perspective. Did the wrong thing. Don't worry, Esau will forgive you. Kiss his feet, which Yaakov eventually has to do anyway in Pajan Ba'ishlach. But Hashem doesn't say a word like that. He says, don't worry. Don't be scared. Um, he sees the Malachim going up and down and so forth. Ani Hashem, It's going to be yours. Okay? etc., etc. So that means Hashem has given him the green light for what he did to Without that assurance, I don't think from a human perspective, Yaakov could have survived by Laman. Because Laman obviously knows about this, is going to make fun of him, going to use it against him, make him miserable, he made him miserable anyway. How do I know Laman knew about this? I'm just going by the Medrash. There's a famous Chazal, uh, I don't feel like pulling it out, but maybe you know this Medrash. When Leah has all the kids, and Rachel doesn't have any kids, she says, give me children in mind, Mason Ochi. And Yaakov says to uh, so what do you call to the old one? 
you know, uh, you, cheated, you cheated me. So wait a minute. He says delay. I'm sorry. I said it wrong. When he found out that Leah was not Rachel, so he said, you cheated me. All night long I called you Rachel, Rachel, and you said, yes, I am. And Leah responds by saying, well, you did that to your father. Uh, <laughs> which is a good diss. And, of course, they were very angry, and it says Yaakov would have divorced her right there. This is what the manager says, not me. Uh, Meshrava. Yaakov would have divorced her right then and there, but then she was pregnant immediately. And then she got pregnant immediately after that, and so forth. And he says, I can't get divorced after she has all my children. So it's not a romantic story, but it goes to show you, she knew the Misa with him and Aso. News travels fast. You think it was, uh, you know, covered up? Chavra, chavra, it's like. And, you know, Yaakov will go to Loban with a cloud over his head. Cloud of suspicion because there's a guy shoot his brother. Unless you say that God Almighty appeared to him, however you mean that, and said, you did the right thing. I'm giving you divine confirmation. You got a thing from me, Nevoah, and you don't have to worry about what all the Goyim say. You have to worry about it. That's just very interesting. So notice the story of Yaakov and the dream is a necessary introduction to surviving the loving business. And he's not afraid when Lovin tries to cheat him to counter-cheat Lovin because, like I said before, Hashem said it'll work out. Uh, that itself is remarkable, if you think about it. That's remarkable. And that is when he becomes a Novi. Notice, as far as I know, Yaakov was, uh, only be, only speaks to Hashem, and more more accurately, God speaks to him. Now in Pashavayit, at the beginning, on Har Maria, with the 12 stones. Until now, it says he was Ishtam Yoshevoli. And if you give the firm interpretation, we're sitting and learning. Here we have like Yisrael Salanter. Sitting and learning doesn't mean you have Ruchnius. <laughs> sitting and learning doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have the highest spirituality. Adrabal. If you go by the Litvaks, this is the, the Litvish versus the, the Baal Shem Tov. At the time of the learning, you can't think of Ruchnius. You have to concentrate on the sukkah. I mean, you have a broader general knowledge, awareness, but not when you're learning. Um, now Yaakov is in a different position, right? Now he's in a different position. And, you know what I mean, He uh, all the stuff that he learned is now coming into Lamaisa in the Ruchnia sense, in the sense of meditation and prophecy. And... Uh, all the time that he punched the clock, now he's showing the Paris because he's getting a real Nevoah. Okay? So, that's a very interesting apartment, in my opinion. And, uh, uh, he sees God standing over it. And obviously, that means Ashkacha brought this because God is not standing atop a ladder. Okay? Here's the general problem. Fascinating problem with this Nevoah, which is that you don't know what it means. He sees a Sula Musa Arts of Rosh Shemaima. You know, you're probably sick and tired of me pointing out each time that when it says Shemaima, it doesn't mean the sky. So he sees Sula Musa Arts He sees a ladder. And it doesn't necessarily mean a ladder. But he sees some bridge, bridging device, um, which is the bottom of it, or the lowest madrig of it, is physical. 
But Rosham Aguino Shemaimo, the higher, and again, it's using spatial terms, but it doesn't mean spatial. He sees that the latter, or whatever you want to call it, is partly in the physical world and partly beyond that. It's partly metaphysical. Frankly, that's something that's impossible. You can't see, uh, although it was a Nevoa, meaning it was a dream. In a dream, you can see the impossible. The Rambam, I think, points it out. Correct? I mean, it's impossible, you know, to have somebody dead and alive at the same time. In a dream, you can, it's a fantasy, you can see anything. Now, it's a Nevoa from Hashem, so it's a, something true, but it can be impossible. There's a very good word in the morning of somewhere. If you if to tell your story, then the Chumash that's impossible, it's impossible. But if you say he saw it in the in a dream, it's true that he saw it in the in a dream. You know what I mean? In other words, that's an accurate statement. Doesn't mean it was physically there. So when it says he saw, um, isn't that what isn't the lashon over here? By Yachalom, by Yachalom, see, Sulam Mutzabar Sabrosham Magishemayim. So this is fascinating. He has a dream. And in the dream, he sees part physical, part metaphysical. Now, you can't see it. But in other words, whatever he imagines as being the metaphysical, that's what he sees in the dream. You know, I have to really look at this closely now that I'm talking to you. It never says he sees it. That's interesting. There must be, you know, uh, Raubach or somebody must go in that. Get it? it doesn't say he saw it. It just says, My chalom, vini sulam that's taco fascinating. So, maybe he didn't know what he's seeing. I don't know. But it doesn't say he saw it or perceived it. Because this is actually something beyond per- perception. In spite of what he just said, it happened. And he sees that the ordinary limitations don't represent the total uh, limitation on reality. There's realities beyond limitations. And that is exactly what Nebuah is. You know what I'm saying? In other words, any penny you had in a Nebuah, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, and the others, every Nebuah they had was a Sulam Mutsavarts of Rosh Hashanah. By definition. They saw physical stuff, or something like that, images, but it's Rosh Hashanah, but, but its real nature was metaphysical. But since it's in a dream, at least the Rambam, as you know, always argues it's a dream, so it could be. In other words, I could dream, me, myself, and I, right now, without being a nobody, I could theoretically dream, you know, science fiction, something like that. I could dream that something is uh, partially physical, partially metaphysical, whether it is or not. Now, by the same token, he sees angels going up and down. But he says, I repeat, it doesn't say he saw Hashem. It's very Maimonidean, you know. It says, God was standing at the top of the metaphysical chain. Remember always, God is not metaphysical. God created everything, so he created the metaphysics. <laughs> it's important to keep that in mind. Okay? So I'm just trying to scratch the surface over here to call your attention to this remarkable episode that I think we just run through because when we were kids, we learned it with Rashi in school for Bechina when they moved Viter. And you see, they say it's an extraordinary vision. I keep coming back to the word vision, but some kind of perception, some kind. It's a halom. And it's transcending the usual. 
And of course, that is implying he's going to get Ashkacha Pratis, which transcends the usual. That's the point. Which transcends the usual. There's a famous line, what's the proof of God that's rival of the Jews? I personally don't like that word, but it's a famous thing. It's supposed to have been said by uh, a French philosopher that Frederick Duray, Marquis d'Argent, of Peter Dinsiv, who must have heard that. It's a very well-known story. It says, you know, the, something similar in the in the next passage in Yudalit. You look at Dinsiv. I don't like it a bit, but the idea is definitely contained in the dream. Okay? And, more importantly, the idea an angel is going in and out the physical, metaphysical, because if they're climbing the ladder, either way, they're going not to the top of the ladder, because it's not a ladder. They're going from the physical to the metaphysical and vice versa. I'm not a McCobble, but you can see the reason having a field day with this stuff, because the basic principle of Kabbalah is you do a mitzvah in this zone of reality, it bounces into the metaphysical world of reality, that bounces back with Sinoros and Ashpah, and Shefa and all this kind of business. That's that Noah, Noah, what's his name? All the details, Noah Shabbat. All the details. I'm serious, you know, and anybody's, you don't have to be McCall, just know a little bit of the, the Ramchal writings. You know, he talks about that stuff. So, that's what you see, Malchai Elohim Olimbiyotabob. They're going in one zone and another, one zone and another. They're not going to heaven, you know. They're going from one zone of reality to another zone of reality. Now, they're living in both. It means Yaakov said they'll be perceived in one or the other. Perceived in one zone and the other, that's more or less what we call Ashkach You know, I was going over here, and the bullet just missed me. It's, so to speak, a mall came and pushed the bullet away. So to speak. You know, that kind of thing. Move from one zone of reality, which was not physical, to a physical one and deflected the bullet. Or whatever you want to say. So these are all the shonas of trying to convey these kind of ideas. Now, it says that our God was at the top, and what does he say? And so forth. So obviously, Yaakov was worried about not having children. They couldn't marry anybody local. The mother said, go marry somebody in Canaan. Who knows what will happen over there? Who knows what will meet anybody over there? You and I know that he met Rachel, right? They didn't know. God is reassuring him it'll work out. But then he says something weird. What does that mean? The Jews are going to rule the world? The Parats, the Yom you'll spread over the world? Rashi says you'll conquer or something like that. You'll overcome. What does that mean? Have the Jews gone, Yom Tzavon became Menegwa? Unless you say you're going to Gullus. That's what you call Parasta. <laughs> right? That one time you'll be in, in, in South Africa in exile, in Australia in exile. That's what they call Parasta. Usually, we like to think of Parasta as something positive. That the borders of Eretz Israel, for example, expand. You know, Mashiach time or something. will include Syria and this and that. You know, whatever. Parasta. You're telling me Parasta means you're, you're going to Gullus? Some of them before should nevertheless read it like that. And then they come to the second half, which is so interesting. What the heck does that mean? Translate the word 
Um, it's not easy to translate. And the Rajbam and the Ibn Ezra and the others all comment on the strange, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, Binyanim. The trouble is in the Middle Ages, they use different words than you and I use. Kal, Nifal, Pia, Bo. They use different language. So you got to know when the Rajbam, for example, talks about Rafi and so forth, Po'il, those were terms for active and passive long ago. Whenever Chubachal is passive, or at least that's the way we would ordinarily read it. But we don't know what the word Nevechabacham means. The Rashman famously says, and Demonezer makes fun of him and disses him. He says, you know, the Rashman is always trying to get the shot. I think everybody knows that. And um, let's see here. I'm pulling out my trusty Rashman, the good one with the notes. Listen to this. So it doesn't mean they'll be blessed, but they'll be grafted. So what does that mean? All the Mishpachas Adama will be grafted onto you? What does that mean? We want all the going? You know something? According to Rashi, that's what it means. It's weird. Right? So everybody will, will, will mix among you. What kind of a brach is that? The opposite. What kind of brach is that? And I say again, the the Ibn Ezra and others uh, make fun of it. But he didn't like the idea that and you will be blessed all the peoples of the world. Because most people don't feel themselves blessed by Kali Yisrael. By the descendants of Yaakov. You wouldn't ordinarily think that way. Now, you could get very defensive and say, oh, the Jews brought prosperity, and so on and so forth. And there are those that learn that way. Who is it? In the footnote, I saw here, in Professor, what's his name's footnote from the Rashba, he brought somebody to, who was it? Uh, can't see. Where is it? Yeah, I think it was a Chizkuni or somebody who says the Sare Ha'aret. Let me, let me get to Chizkuni for a second. Okay, I pulled out the art scroll. Um, you know, Mikra's Gedolas. And indeed, you got to go to Lechacha. You know, that's why he because it says, Avram, Vavarcha, Mavarchecha, Mechalelcha, or Nivrechu Bechal, Kolmishbechosadama. Same language is here. And it's very interesting from a history perspective. Because the Chizkuni, there's also the same time as the Rasha, Rasha more or less. And um, they also have the Daz Kenemi Balatosis. Notice these are the northern French Ashkenazim. And how do they read? I'll read you first the Chizkuni and then the Daz Kenemi Balatosis. I mean, he lived in northern France. Were all the nobles in France trying to convert to Judaism? It's actually kind of interesting. There were a few cases, a few, uh, where they kind of did. But old Halbrook, losing the Catholic Church, went crazy and that shut that one down. There were some Norman knights. That's exactly the time we're talking about in the Middle Ages. Ovadi was a famous one. There were a few others at the Carolingian courts and some of the other French courts, and they Tucker converted to Judaism and ran away. 
Uh, I'll say it again. It didn't last. But, um, because the Catholic Church cracked down on it. And the Dallas Cain and Balitosis, Yis Arbu Bechal, Kol Mishpikos Adoma, Shakol Yis Avu, Lihis Chaber Imach. Everybody want to join with you. I mean, why are all these northern French commentators writing like that? It's interesting. In the 1100s, you see something interesting. And that is, if enough for the fact that the Catholic Church is cracking down, a lot of high officials in Zhang would switch to Judaism. For a person that's very invested in Christianity, reads the Bible, they pretty soon come to, many of them, it can happen, come to the conclusion, the Old Testament is better, it's more accurate. And moreover, when Jews, now I'm saying something historically, uh, at different courts, were allowed to um, express their opinion on the different religions, they made a tremendous Russian on the bishops and the Catholic uh, knights and things like that. Because um, they never heard anything contrary. The Catholics tried to keep it as firm as the Haredim. You shouldn't hear anything different than your own. But if you ever do, you never know. Somebody might be let off the dark, so to speak. You know, well, one second. Yeah, here, I pulled out my Chazay um, Kreskis, Orashen. The nice edition with the Nakudas. <laughs> and on the front page, he has a passage from Chassid Yavitz. Yosef Yavitz, who one of the people left Spain. In 1492, Chazekres has been in 1392. And he says like this, And Chazekres, if you know who he was, was a great rabbi, etc., and a millionaire. He was a high official at the court in Aragon, in Spain. And he defended the Jewish position when he was allowed to. And it could be that's what led to the big riots. I mean, not him, but Jews like him. And this is what Chazekres writes. He made all the other philosophers at the royal court uh, look inferior. And he was great to his God, meaning he defended theologically, philosophically, the cause of Judaism against Christianity. He did like Abraham. Meaning he called for Yiddishkeit. Again, Philosophically, and they answered him. In other words, he got a receptive audience among the Spanish Catholics, the Catalonians. It was a Kiddush Hashem. Now, again, the reaction was to launch. No, it's none of it mattered because the gun then went crazy and killed all the Jews in Spain. But when he had a chance to open his mouth, Hear that? A lot of big shots in the kingdom of Aragon. That's Spain. In the 1390s. In their hearts, they were Jewish. Meaning, they really bought into this stuff. They're not switching. Right? They're not crazy. But deep down, they say, you know, he's right. He's right. Like the Ramban said to the king of Aragon in the 1200s in his debate. He said, if you ever think about it, you got a lot of tall tales in the New Testament. If you believe it because you were raised in it, okay. But to ask somebody else to believe in it, you know, it's it's a tall order. You know, just, and you get angry if I don't believe it. 
That's a tall order. So it is fascinating that these people would read the dream of Yaakov and not attack it like Rashi and not go after it like the other Mephoshim and not say, oh, he's having a great dream about this, that, and the other. But he's having a dream that the truth of Yaakov, which is bothering you about your brother, if you're allowed to proclaim it, you will get your narrative will prevail, which it does today. And your message will be so powerful that others will be drawn to it like a magnet. And it could be that this informs the story of Loan, because as Yaakov is hanging around him, everybody that comes in close contact with Yaakov falls for him. I'm talking about the four wives. Rachel, Leah, Bill, and Zilba. And you can read the whole story of how Loman interacts with him as generating anti-Semitism in order to prevent the other brothers from going off to Loman Derek and joining the Yaakov Derek. That's why he said, you know, he made all oh, the wealth from our father and so on and so forth. I'm sure Loman puts that around. And you can even hear in the famous speech of Loman at the end of the Pasha, that Loman saying, like, you are not going to take this away from me. He won't acknowledge that he's lost his daughters. The daughter of Sadi Yaakov in this week's parsha, Nachrios on him. We have no shaykhs to the father. He was their father. But Yaakov, the way he presented the idea of God, made the Loman idea look stupid. The Loman's afraid. And he's denying it like an Arab. They're all mine. Everything you see is mine. But, you know, I'm going to let you go. Which means you won them. And I haven't one them. Loven leaves very angry, as we all know. It's just that God appeared to him and said, don't touch him. So what can he do? So Yaakov has a very unusual dream. I've only scratched the surface, but I think I've gone long enough. Once again, I want to... So take a look at it. You know, usually we concentrate on the second half of the Parsha, which is, of course, fascinating also. Take a look at this dream of Yaakov, especially God's word. It's not so push it. And uh, I think it's something fruitful to discuss at your table on the Shabbos. It's, a, it's the opposite of a simple story. Once again, I want to thank David Feinkirk and family for sponsoring this. I hope everybody has a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.